0: As we are doing a sermon series in the Old Testament, our first scripture reading is from the new. We're reading through the book of James, as you can see there. And today we're reading specifically from James chapter one. Hannah's gonna come and read it for us. Hannah, if you would.
1: James 1, 19 to 27. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God,
0: Uh, if you'll turn your attention to the back middle portion of the bulletin, uh, we are going to read Amos 3 in just a second. We are doing a, a, a series in Amos. It's a, he's a prophet. He has a word for the people of Israel, the northern kingdom at this point. He's been sent by God, and he's kind of in the middle of addressing them, uh, raising a number of issues, a number of things that have gone wrong there. And Amos 3 is sort of not too different from the first two chapters. But before we get into it, Cody's going to come and read it for us, and then we'll be back. Cody.
2: Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore I punish you for all your iniquities. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city, and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? For the Lord, do, for the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants and prophets. The lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord, God, the Lord God has spoken, but who can prophesy? Proclaim to the strongholds in Ashdod, and say to the strongholds in the land of Egypt, and they say, assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria, and see the great tumults within her and the oppressed in her midst. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their stronghold. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, an adversary shall surround the land and bring down your defenses from you, and your strongholds shall be plundered. Thus says the Lord, as a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. Hear and testify against the house of Jacob, declares the Lord God, the God of hosts, that on the day I punished Israel for his transgressions, I will punish the altars of Bethel, and the horns of the altar shall be cut off and fall to the ground. I will strike the winter house along with the summer house, and the houses of ivory shall perish, and the great houses shall come to the end, declares the Lord.
0: All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Not sure how much uh, you use Google Trends in your day-to-day life. Maybe some of you are big Google Trends people. Uh, I like to dabble there once in a while, just sort of see what's happening, see if anything pops up. And one of the main features of Google Trends is you can put in a search term and to see how much has been searched over the past, you know, day, week, five years, ten years, or whatever. For instance, the search term Benjal if of my name returns astonishingly low search volume, both in the past and in the present. No, one, no, one, no one's looking for that. On the other hand, a search term like crypto, as in cryptocurrency, if you look at it over the last 15 or 20 years has, you know, it's flat, 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 little, little blips here and there. And then of course has this huge spike in 2021, you know, as Bitcoin and Ethereum, whatever, all the rest sort of skyrocketed in the, in the public consciousness. Another search term that skyrocketed around the same time was the phrase white privilege. Maybe you've heard about this. It's the idea or theory, depending on how you think about it, not here to debate it, um, that Caucasian people, white people, have a set of built-in advantages in the Western world. And again, you can debate this over copy time, whether you like this or dislike this, but the term skyrocketed after George Floyd's death and after the subsequent Black Lives Matter marches. Perhaps you remember this. Now, I bring, I bring this up not because we're using Google today, but because sort of this idea of privilege and its associations comes up in Amos 3. Now, if you, when we read through it, when Cody read it, the, the word privilege doesn't actually appear. But the, I think the idea is everywhere in the passage. But the ancient Israelites are thinking about it very differently than the way our modern culture does. Let, let me explain. For them, for Israelites, privilege was not a socioeconomic term. It was not a racial term, it was a spiritual one. All of Israel understood themselves to be spiritually privileged. Why, because they were God's special people. It says it right there. From the time of Abraham, through all the long years in in Egypt, all the way to Canaan, the Promised Land, the people of Israel understood. We have been treated differently by God. God has given us things that he has not given to the nations. They looked back on this broad sweep of centuries and they could point to the history and the law and the prophets and the writings and the kings and the temple and the priesthood and, and the land and so on. They had been given so much. They were spiritually privileged, that's how we could say it, compared to all the other nations. But there was a problem, of course. Instead of their privilege making them kind and generous and outward-facing, instead of using all that they had been given to benefit others, their privilege turned them inward. They became obsessed with themselves. They forgot about God. They began to imagine, oh, all the good things we have, it came because we've worked really hard and we've, we've given it to ourselves, or maybe these other foreign gods have given us these things. In short, the special covenant God had made with them had not borne the intended results, and God is now sending Amos, the prophet, to call them to account. Now, scholars will tell you, and I'll point out a few places it comes up. Scholars will tell you that Amos 3 bears the marks of a lawsuit, that God is suing his people uh, for their failure to adhere to terms that have been set out that they've agreed to. Amos is like the prosecutor. He's sent by this other person to go and to lay out the evidence against Israel. And I think we, should be, we would be wise to heed the words of Amos 3 because here we see what happens when God's people refuse to live up to their calling. So three parts to today's text, if this helps to follow along, we'll talk about covenant responsibility, then we'll talk about all those cause and effect statements, kind of there in the middle, and then towards the end, we'll talk about covenant curses. So first, covenant responsibility. This chapter opens with a phrase that pops up over and over in Amos, and indeed many places in the Old Testament, the phrase is, hear this word, hear this word. It's a formula for a summons. It's an indication, hey, I'm sending you an important message, listen up. In fact, one of the most famous verses in all the Old Testament that every Israelite would have, would have memorized from the time they were, just a very small child, is Deuteronomy 4, verse 6. It's called the Shema Israel, if you, if you know that term. But it basically says in English, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then it kind of goes on. Hear, O Israel. They would have memorized this, every child in Israel. It would have been lodged in their heads. And now Amos comes along, and in, at the beginning of his lawsuit... What does he say? Hear, O Israel, the exact same phrase. It marks how important the words he is about to say are. But of course, in the words that follow, it's not like Deuteronomy 4, which is sort of a word of instruction. Amos is speaking a word against them. That's why scholars call it a lawsuit. That's a word against the people of Israel. God has a grievance. And in the second sentence, you can see that God's grievance is against the family that he brought out of Egypt. Now, uh, at this time, as I've said a couple times, Israel was split into two kingdoms, and there were probably some who thought, well, God's going to treat these two kingdoms differently, perhaps. The northern tribes likely felt quite quite justified, quite self-righteous, because they had rebelled against an unjust king. Remember, Rehoboam, he was the one who was at fault, not them. Weren't they in the right and, and Judah in the wrong? But God is saying here, no, no, no. The word I'm speaking is against the whole family, I chose your family, all of you, and you're all being held to account, all the sons. And in verse 2, God affirms the special status the people have. They alone were chosen, as I was saying in the start. I think it's just a little bit interesting to consider as a thought experiment that God might have chosen a different people. He was, of course, free to. God can do whatever he wants. Uh, Abraham didn't find God, and God's like, well, I guess I have to choose you. You found me first. You know, you know God, God found Abraham. He chose Abraham. God might have chosen the Koreans, the Aztecs. You know, he might, he might have chosen someone else, but he didn't. Now later, of course, all of us, all nations, are enfolded into the plan of God. But in the time of Amos and for all of history up until that point, Israel was God's special people. And then at the end of verse 2, therefore, God will punish them for all their iniquities. Now this chapter, unlike the last one and unlike some more to come, it does not spell out in detail what these iniquities are, these sins. The main concern in these first two verses is just the relationship between the covenantal status, this special status, and their responsibility before God. And the principle is this. Someone who knows better, someone who has spiritual advantages, someone who has spiritual privilege, has more responsibility. When Jesus comes along, you know, thousands of years later, or whatever, hundreds of years later, can't remember exactly, he will tell a parable. And it's a parable of these two servants, and they're both waiting for their master to come back. And servant number one is sort of uh, a more important servant. He's set in charge of the house. Uh, He has uh, better expectations of what he should and shouldn't be doing, the timing of the arrival. It's not exactly known, but it's generally known. That's like servant number one. But then there's a second servant, and he's also in the house, sort of has responsibilities, but is given very little information. And then Jesus says, suppose while the master is away, the servants just go wild in the house and they they eat all the master's food and they get drunk on the master's wine. They start beating other servants in the house and the master arrives home unexpectedly to find all this chaos. What happens? Well, Luke 12, 47, it says, the servant who knew more will receive a severe punishment. That's what Jesus says. But the servant who knew less will receive a lesser punishment. And the principle is the same. Spiritual privilege, spiritual gift, means spiritual responsibility. More was expected of Israel. They were supposed to be a holy nation. They were supposed to be a whole kingdom of priests. But somewhere along the line, Israel's gotten it backwards. They thought their spiritual privilege would protect them. How could God punish us? We're his people, like spoiled kids. They thought their covenant status meant unending blessing, but God corrects them. No, no, it doesn't mean un- unending blessing, it actually means more responsibility. And this is quite a serious lesson for the modern church. You know, in 1 Peter, we too are called to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests, very similar language. We too have inherited spiritual blessings, if, particularly if you're a person who grew up in church, you know what it's like to know the stories of all the Bible characters before you can even speak. If you are a Christian, then to you and your children belong the writings and the teachings and the covenant and the church and the sacraments and the blessings from hearing the gospel and and all of that. But tragically, some come to believe that, well, maybe attendance will guarantee blessing. And in in ways, we, we subtly begin to believe, well, God has to take care of me. I go to church. How could God let this happen to me or that happen to me? I'm a church person. Statistical surveys will tell you that by some or even many moral measures, Christians just simply resemble the world around them. And I'm here to remind you, from the words of Amos, God has expectations of his people. His gifts, his blessings cannot be spurned forever. Those who know better must live like it. God will not allow his people to become like all the other families of the earth. So we need to hear this word, lest the Lord speak a word against us. Okay, let's talk about part two, cause and effect. Verse three kicks off a series of seven questions, if you count them, that are a bit strange. But I want to point out a few features of these questions. And the first feature I want to point out is that the first six all follow the same pattern until it's kind of flipped by the seventh. So in each statement, in each question, it's not a statement really, there's a statement of a result and effect and then it's followed by the cause. So it doesn't go cause and effect. It goes effect and then cause. Look at the first one I'll show you. Do two walk together unless they have agreed to meet? The result is two people you know, out for a stroll going for a walk. What was the cause of that? It was caused by the two of them. You know, let's, let's meet at 5 p.m. We'll go for you know, wander around the neighborhood or whatever. The cause was they agreed to meet. Okay? Let's do another one. Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Now it's a bit... Uh, Tricky because he's using negatives there, but the effect is the lion roaring The lion roars because he has no prey. That's the cause if the lion had prey. He wouldn't be roaring and And so on and all the other ones in each of the statements. There's an effect a result stated Followed by a cause effect and cause that's the first pattern. I want you to see but there's another I also want you to see that the answer to every question is no Two don't walk together unless they have agreed to meet. A bird can't fall in a snare if there is no snare. A snare uh, doesn't spring unless it has been tripped. A trumpet isn't blown if the people aren't afraid. Essentially, if you work through the questions, it goes, no, 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 no. I think that was six. That's the answer to the first six statements. Now, the larger question is, what is Amos doing? Uh, if you think of this speech like a, a persuasive sermon, what strategy is he employing? Well, if you've been here the past couple weeks, this will be helpful. In chapter 1 and 2, Amos had this formula that he kept applying to all these different enemy nations, seven different nations, if you recall. He would generally accuse them. He would specifically accuse them, and then he'd pronounce judgment. And he would go over this formula over and over again, seven rounds. And what we said Amos was doing is that he's getting Israel to nod along. Yes, those guys have sinned. Yes, God should punish them. Yes, 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 yes. And then what happens at the end? Amos puts Israel into the formula, and by their own agreement, by their own logic, uh, they have already agreed that it's just for God to judge them. So if you have this sort of rhetorical strategy in the back of your head, then it makes a lot of sense of what's happening in Amos 3. Amos chooses six everyday examples the crowd is very likely to agree, uh, agree with him with. Uh, they agree lions don't roar if they don't have prey. They agree young lions don't cry if they have food. They agree snares don't spring themselves. You know, they're saying no, no, no. They're agreeing with him. And then Amos springs his linguistic trap. Middle of verse 6. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And if you said no six times in a row, then you can't help but say no to this one. If all effects have a cause, then disaster, the effect of disaster, has a cause as well. Disaster, invasion, destruction, this is not just happenstance of world powers rising and falling, but Amos says, the activity of a God who knows, sees, and commands all. Now, in verse seven, which we'll get to in a second, which kind of is the culmination of this, before we do that, I have an important question to ask and hopefully answer. And it's just this, is God really the author of disaster? Maybe you're like, wait a second, is that what what you just said? What role does God play in all this? Is God really sort of up there or out there somewhere commanding sinful, wicked nations to invade and destroy and sack and ransack other ones? It's a good question. I'll say, The first thing I'll say about that is that everywhere the scriptures affirm that God is neither the author nor the causer of any sin. God has nothing to do with sin. John will say God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And yet we also say at the same time, God is involved with and uses sinful nations and sinful people, which is in the end, the final accounting, all of us. Yes, God does sometimes bring disaster on a city. Not sinfully, not vindictively, but disaster all the same. Now I also understand that churches like ours or our theological tradition, we come to texts like this and like, well I have some ideas about God's sovereignty and the divine enforcement of God's will and let's let's argue for a while about the limits of human freedom, all important topics. Amos is just not concerned with those questions. <laughs> all the questions, he'd be like, Yeah, but what about free will? Nah, Amos is like, No, no, I got something else to say. And his point is simpler, and perhaps it's even, just even more profound. He just wants Israel to recognize that God's involved with their lives, all the parts. God isn't absent. God isn't constrained. He's just there. He is the God who is there. He's mixed in with all the good. And yes, he is also somehow mysteriously, unexplainably present for all of the bad. But more to the point of this text. I think that verse 6 is sort of asking Israel, did you really expect, did you really think in your heart of hearts that if you sinned without any repentance that God would simply shrug? Is that what you thought? See, Amos isn't interested in debates about the limits of human freedom. He wants Israel to know that God is there and he will do what is just. Moreover, verse 7 tells us the message we should be getting from all these effect and cause questions. It's just simply this. God's trying to warn them. He's trying to warn them. He said, I'm sending you a prophet. And again, this language from the very start of the book, the lion is roaring. You should tremble, and, God, and Amos said, God, like God's told me to speak, and so I'm speaking. See, God does not send disaster on a whim. He's not vindictive like Zeus or the Greek gods or whatever. He's patient, he's kind. Even when judgment is deserved, he sends prophets to tell Israel to change their ways before it's too late. It's easy to go on thinking that you can get away with sin. And for long stretches of time, it can appear that God doesn't seem to care how people live. It can appear that being baptized and taking communion, it's it's enough. And and God just says, it's it's not. And I hope the words of Amos are a warning to us that judgment begins at the household of God. The nations, they'll have their time. They'll have to answer for their own actions, of course. The house of God must be clean. And for every effect, there is a cause. Let's move to part three. Covenant curses. A part of me even hesitates to use that word curse. Because I'm like, ooh, Harry Potter. Or you know, some other, some other fantasy world where uh, we, know what, we think we know what curses are. It's like, oh, they're used by the bad guys. And they're incantations or spells of some kind. Uh, That's not the sense I'm using curse. So I hope you'll listen to me before you're like, ooh, curses and kind of forget about what I'm saying for a second. See, if you go back and read the original covenant that the people of Israel had made with God, it had these stipulations. The the people are promising to do this. God's promising to do this. And then there's a whole section about blessings and curses. And they're not sort of mysterious, mystical, incantation-y things. They're just very concrete things. You might even call them rewards, consequences. Blessings are positive consequences. Curses are negative consequences. And in places like Deuteronomy 28, that's sort of the clearest place, uh, God tells the people what the negative consequences, what the curses are for those who do not abide by the covenant. And what we find in verses 9 through 15 of Amos 3 are a number of curses that God pronounces on the people. They all have their parallels in Deuteronomy 28. And this is, again, why why we kind of call it a lawsuit. The terms have been set out hundreds of years in the past. Israel said, yep, we agree. And now they've refused to follow the terms and God's saying, this is what the consequence was or this is what the consequences will be to what, because of what you previously agreed to. The first curse... is is ridicule from enemies. If you look at verse nine, God calls on the people from the strongholds of Ashdod in Egypt to gather on the mountains that surround Samaria, that's the capital of Israel, and to watch the struggle she is going through and and is about to go through. Now Ashdod is a a Philistine city, and of course Egypt is Egypt. And so in Israelite history, you can think about it this way. God is summoning their ancient enemies, Egypt, and their modern enemies, Philistia, to come and watch and struggle and bear witness to their sin. And Samaria was built in a hilly area, not mountainous, but kind of hilly. And the nations are called to like, take up positions on all the hills around Samaria and just look at what's happening, which is a humiliation. Think about how it feels to when someone even, maybe you like, watches you mess up. And God says, your foes, Israel, they are going to come and they're going to watch you struggle and sin. And this humiliation before human enemies is promised, Deuteronomy 28, 25, and 26. The second curse is military defeat. If you look down in verse 11, God promises because of their sin an adversary is going to surround the land, tear down its defenses, and plunder its strongholds. This too is promised Deuteronomy 28, 47 to 49. As a consequence... But so total will be the military defeat that verse 12 says, it'll be like when a shepherd returns a small part of its sheep to its owner. Maybe it's like a leg or a piece of ear. Now, you're like, what, what does that mean? Well, in days before, you know, photo, video, evidence, owners would regularly require proof from like, hired hands that a wild animal had actually killed the sheep. They're like, maybe you just got hungry. You know, maybe, maybe you killed the sheep or whatever. And so the shepherds would have to like, bring back something as proof. Sometimes they'd have to like, you know, chase after the wolf and just like, can I get a piece of an ear? Something not carried off by the wild animal. And, and that scrap of proof, they'd bring it back to the owner and say, see, look, like, you know, the bear or the lion or whatever ate, ate this animal. That scrap of proof God says, that's what Samaria will be reduced to by an invading army. Just a piece of a bed, a corner of a couch, that's all that's going to be left. You're going to be obliterated. Third curse, places of worship will be destroyed. If you look down at verse 14, God says, I'm going to destroy the altars of Bethel and cut off its horns. Now, Bethel was sort of the chief place of worship. Uh, and they had they had set it up kind of at the very beginning of the kingdom. You know, I you know, ostensibly to try to worship God, but it went off track very, very quickly and it's completely off track now. And God says, I'm, I'm going to tear down that altar where you offer sacrifices. The worship at Bethel had long been a farce. And the reference to cutting off its horns, it might be literal. The, the altar may have had horns on it, perhaps resembling a bull. We aren't exactly sure. But horn in the Old Testament is also a, a euphemism for strength. And maybe God said, I'm, I'm going to chop off its horns. No one's going to be attracted to this place anymore. No one's going to think there's any strength left here. The fourth curse is the cursing of all previous Blessings. If you look in verse 15, God says, I'm going to strike the summer house along with the winter house, the ivory house, along with all the other great houses. Now in Israel, many nations are like this. The wealthy could afford multiple houses. You got, right? You got a summer house in the cooler part of the country. You have a, war, uh, a winter house in some warmer part of the country. And they had beautiful houses, decorations of ivory. Material blessings are, are, are to be seen as a gift from God. If, to, even to this day, if you are a person who owns a house, If you're a person who owns multiple houses in the world of the Bible, that's a gift. Now, we don't always know why God gives it to some and not to others, but he knows that if you are given it, it is so that you can be generous, you can be kind with it. Houses are a blessing. But God says, because of Israel's sin, I'm going to take away that blessing. He pronounces a curse on their wealth, a curse on what they've labored for, a curse on what they love. And of course, this language too is all over Deuteronomy 28. So what kinds of patterns are emerging? What should we be learning from this? Well, very helpfully, in the original terms of the contract, Deuteronomy 28, towards the end it says curses function as a sign. They point to something beyond themselves. That God isn't being vindictive, he's trying to teach, he's trying to show the consequences of sin. So I think I'd say this. The consequences we experience in this life are intended to warn us. You know, when we sin, it often hurts. It hurts relationships, it hurts our hearts, destroys trust. Sin causes all kinds of wreckage. It costs us financially. Sometimes, sometimes you have to go to jail. Sometimes you gotta pay fines for your sin. Sin can also ruin things that were previously blessings. Friendships, romantic relationships, family relationships. Sin can lead to ridicule and humiliation. It can lead to your enemies, you know, whoever they are, rejoicing in your defeat. All the consequences we feel in this life, they are real, they do hurt. They are supposed to, war- they're supposed to warn us to flee the greater consequences that are coming. All the hurt, it's supposed to be the dashboard warning light. It's supposed to be the smoke detector, you know, beeping in the middle of the night, saying, change before it's too late. That's how they function. Pain isn't supposed to turn you away from God, but toward Him. And in His grace, I think, God allows us to feel the weight and damage of our sin so that we might flee to His salvation. Now, we must be careful on this point. Not all pain is sin, of course. Not all summer houses or winter houses are sinful, of course. Not all disaster is because you've done something wrong. I'm not trying to say that. Please hear me. But I will simply offer you a few diagnostic questions. We'll close with this. Where are you experiencing pain and consequences in your life? And is it because of sin? Is God trying to awaken you to something? Is there something you're not seeing? Friends, the terror, the the bleakness of this passage is intended to help us flee to Christ. The the warnings, the consequences here, they're they're supposed to push us toward Jesus. See, God does not threaten us and leave us without options. What he leaves us is himself. He knows you're not going to keep the covenant perfectly. He knows you're going to sin and be sinned against. And so he offers you a refuge, which is him. And as as long as you draw breath, then God stands like a good father, hoping you'll flee to him, offering to you a home, a family, forgiveness, and reconciliation. So my prayer is that you would hear his voice. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, even for bleak passages like this one, because we know that they are intended to do something to us. They're they're intended to make us feel the weight of our own sin, the starkness of life without you. For any here who are trapped in sin, may they, may they run to you this morning. May they flee to you. Help us to run far away from sin. May it not get a foothold on our hearts or on our lives. Please help us to see. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.